we have um, discussed the first three of the seven factors of enlightenment. Now come the other four. The other four are the factors of the meditative absorptions. So as you can see, in the factors of enlightenment, we have first insight and then calm. And they are not exactly worded the same way that we usually do. We usually go from the um, delight to the happiness, from the happiness to the contentment to the um, uh, equanimity. So they are worded happiness, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. So the first one is called happiness rather than the uh, bliss or rapture. And then the next one, instead of joy, tranquility, the third one, concentration, and the fourth one, equanimity. which does not in any way contradict the usual wording because the delight is also happiness-inducing and the next one, the second one, does have more tranquility in it, third one, much more deep, much deeper concentration, and the fourth one, equanimity. In order to be enlightenment factors, these particular states of meditation need to be perfected. When we say perfected about the meditative absorptions, it means that one can enter into them at any time one wishes, stay in them as long as one likes, come out of them at the appointed time and know exactly what one has done, and also, one other factor which denotes complete agility of the mind, that one can jump from one to the fourth one, then to third, and um, not in their progressive order, then, uh, but rather in any order that one wishes. In other words, one can become master of the jhanas. And in order to have it as an enlightenment factor, agility, agil, um, no, um, the the mind is uh, yes, yes, flexible. It moves easily, huh? In German, it's the same word, agil. <laughs> I thought maybe in Dutch was no. <laughs> um, so we have here uh, the one that's mentioned in the in the sutta is the equanimity enlightenment factor, um, which of course in the meditative absorptions is very deep and um, a state of mind which has no disturbance whatsoever. And uh, we will discuss the meditative absorptions at greater length when they come up in another sutta where they uh, possibly um, are of the main aspect of the sutta. However, 
in our practice, as we practice the um, concentration and the uh, meditation, and as we practice insight into ourselves and becoming calmer, more peaceful, we can also consider particularly the equanimity factor as one which is greatly desirable in ourselves in daily life and which we can notice when it is absent. Now this means that we are very mindful of our mental state and content. If there is disturbance in the mind, anxiety, upset, we shall know it, which means that we have no equanimity enlightenment factor in us. And we learn to understand how it arises, the, um, how we make the equanimity factor arise. Now, not, this is not concerning the meditative state where we have by this time already learned that we have to go through the different stages of the meditation, but this is in our daily activities, in our daily thinking, as we know that the equanimity factor is not present, how, how do we um, make it arise? How do we make equanimity arise within? And equanimity cannot be forced. We can't pretend, or not, I'm, I never get upset, or um, I'm totally at ease. We can't pretend it's useless. True equanimity has to be based on insight. And it has to be based on the insight of arising and vanishing. Whatever has arisen must vanish. So what's there to worry about? It's going to go away again anyway. And also, one of the factors that is very helpful in making equanimity arise is the investigation whether a disturbed state of mind is actually worthwhile in the prevailing situation. Is there any any need, any importance, is there anything there that makes it worth it? Now, obviously, these are considerations which one has to arouse in oneself when one realizes that equanimity is not naturally present. And it isn't naturally present in us. At times it is, but at other times it isn't. So while we need to work again on two levels with this, we have the meditative aspect, the fourth jhana, to support and to bring us to equanimity, we still have to work on the daily level also. We can't just rely on the meditative states. It is quite possible that although our meditation is flourishing, that we can still get upset because inside the calm meditation is flourishing, because inside has not um, kept pace with with the calm. So this is one of the reasons why I keep on repeating 
that whenever you have any of the pleasant states of the jhanas, any of the desirable states, to notice with great attention how those states also disappear again. They are also impermanent. So that we get more and more imbued with the insight of this totally transparent existence which is has no solidity and uh, the only reason we are t- constantly fooled is because of <coughs> continuity. Now unless our mind is particularly pointed at the fact that the breath is impermanent we don't really pay attention to that because it is continuous there's one after another and our memory also stretches back so that we have a continuity of knowing ourselves as me and therefore we lose sight of that constant changing factor of body and mind continuity is clouding over the understanding of impermanence. So equanimity needs to be based on that insight and it needs to be based also on an, on an inner realization that the world itself will never satisfy. In other words, Dukkha. So what's there to worry about? It won't satisfy, no matter what it does. Even if everything goes exactly the way we want it, we're still not going to be satisfied. And hardly anybody has everything going the way they want it, if anybody at all. And as we see these things more and more clearly, the um, realization that anger, upset, rejection and resistance are strictly moods in the mind which have no value and no benefit becomes stronger. And if we have practice in the way that the Buddha has described here in this particular sutta, we will also have lost some of our ego identification systems. We won't lose them all. They are not going to get uprooted until we make the jump, at least the second and third one. But from our worldly uh, understanding to the transcendental understanding, but at least we will have a little less of that ego identification. The less ego identification, the easier it is to have equanimity. The, um, <coughs> the far enemy of equanimity is obviously upset and uh, anxiety and uh, worry and restlessness. But the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. And they're very close to each other. They appear to be the same. And particularly people whose emotions are very easily roused and who find themselves in one misery after another because of emotional reactions often resort to the um, 
supposed remedy of indifference. They try to protect themselves from their emotional upheavals. It's no protection because the emotional upheavals will still happen, but the understanding of the emotional upheaval will be lacking. So indifference is no remedy, it's no help at all. It is, on the contrary, more of a prison because it has the the aspect of turning away from one's own emotions and others and it cannot have loving kindness and compassion in it. It can become very impersonal. Impersonal towards oneself and others. It's often resorted to as a um, protection against too much emotionalism. That is no protection. The protection against too much emotionalism is to purify the emotions and to remain with those that are called the supreme emotions, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Equanimity is, by all counts, the pinnacle of emotion. It is an emotion, but it is neither passionately wanting, nor is it rejecting. It is an emotion of harmony and peacefulness, and therefore the pinnacle of all emotions. Naturally, our meditative practice has a lot to do with, first of all, making us acquainted with the way it feels and having a residue in us where in our daily lives things are no longer so near to our skin because we have to our emotional skin because we have a different and another way of attuning ourselves but it isn't the whole story. It is only a support system. It has to be also practiced. Now we can practice equanimity in daily life by again and again trying to see what it is that we're becoming upset about, why we're being upset and so forth. An inquiry system. That does not suppress the naturally arising emotion, it inquires into it. Suppressing is also not useful. Indifference is suppressing. Indifference can also very often be intellectualizing, not being in touch. It does not help at all. And it doesn't make in insight arise either because we don't know what we're looking into. When we understand how the arisen equanimity enlightenment factor comes to be developed and perfected, we are talking about two levels again. We're talking about the level of the meditative procedure and 
in order to develop and perfect it and also in our daily lives. In the meditation, naturally, it is something that we need to be able to hold for the length of time we wish. It's not an easy one. The fourth jhana is a difficult one because the ego support is practically completely lacking, so it's difficult. And uh, very often we find that we go in and out of it rather than stay with it. It's just a matter of practicing to develop and to perfect means practicing and knowing that we cannot have an ego support when we are totally at peace and absorbed in that peace. In daily life, the arising, the arisen equanimity factor to develop and perfect means that we make the inquiry into insight over and over again so that equanimity becomes more part of our habitual response. We all have habitual responses and usually equanimity is not one of them. It's not something that we are particularly taught or that is um, particularly mentioned to us at any stage in our learning process. So it is the time when we get, when we come in contact with the Buddhist teachings that this particular learning process can take place. And again, not to confuse it with indifference or suppression. It is a knowledge and an understanding, a realization of higher things than the worldly aspects which upset us. We can also realize, of course, that when equanimity is not present, that we're either not getting what we want or we're getting what we don't want, which is the simplest way of losing equanimity, there is no other way. There are many ways of describing it, but it always boils down to that. And since we'll never, ever get all we want, and we'll never be completely be able to avoid getting what we don't want, we might as well look at it with a smile on our face. In this respect, the Buddha talked about the eight worldly dhammas. Now here the dhammas are again factors, and they are praise and blame, loss and gain, fame and ill-fame, happiness and unhappiness. And he says that all of us are subject to all eight. However, we only want to have four. And since this is an impossible endeavor to get only four and avoid the other four, we are uneasy, very often restless, worried, we're disliking things that happen because they bring us one of the unpleasant four 
and equanimity is far from us. Where there is gain, there has to be loss. Where there is praise, there will be blame. Where there is fame, there will be ill fame. Where there is happiness, there is unhappiness. Even the Buddha was also blamed for things he didn't do, of course. He also had ill fame. There were villagers who wouldn't support him, and all sorts of stories. Jesus even got killed for his troubles. What to say about us? And still, we don't want any blame, and we don't want any ill thing. We wouldn't like anybody to talk badly about us. If we find out, we get quite upset. And uh, we don't want to lose anything that we call our own. We only want the gain, the praise, the fame, and the happiness. An un- impossible endeavor. It just isn't possible. So if we look at those eight and take it as a matter of course that one, the one set of four also brings about the other set of four. We may be able to have a little more equanimity. Things just are the way they are. And because all these things are based on opinions and viewpoints, and all of those are based on the ego delusion, nothing ever has the absolute and intrinsic reality within. Absolute and intrinsic reality looks entirely different and certainly does not have any endeavor for equanimity. It just is. Very often called suchness. The Buddha was called Tathagata, which means literally translated the one gone such. Gata is gone. Tata, such the one gone such. In uh, Sanskrit, tatvamasi, I'm such. There's no equanimity factor to be found or to be lost in that. It just is. But since we aren't living in that absolute reality, we need to practice. Because all our negative states of mind are producing bad karma for us. And by necessary and natural evolution, they immediately create unhappiness for us. And if we don't want to increase our own unhappiness, it's up to us to look after that. Nobody will look after our happiness except we ourselves. This is something that we have to get straight in our minds. It's such a truism, isn't it? It almost sounds as if it was totally unnecessary to say a thing like that. It's so obvious. And yet, people don't act like that. The only person that will ever look after our own happiness are we ourselves. Nobody else will. And if somebody is kind and nice to us, well, that's very nice, and we can be very grateful, and it's an excellent situation. But in reality, it's our mind state that will have to look after our own mind state. And this is where we get the help of the meditation 
where eventually we can have that support system, but the basic and most incisive change comes about from insult. And that's why there are so many insult practices mentioned in this particular system. All right, any questions on equanimity or anything related to anything? Worldly one, worldly happiness. Doesn't have anything to do with this meditative uh, uh, factors. It's just what's in the, a mind state, a state of mind. And if it was taken away, then you'd be unhappy. Yeah. And not, not this uh, meditative state. I mean, these are also, you know, sort of um, uh, arbitrary translations. Uh, we could translate these differently. I mean, it could be called joy here. It didn't have to be called happiness or sukha is. Anyway, these, uh, these four here do den- denote the four, first four jhanas, these four states that I mentioned in the Sutta. Happiness factor, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. But in the worldly dhammas, it has nothing to do with meditative states. Hmm? Now again, we have the uh, inside uh, paragraph, and we're contemplating in ourselves and externally, in ourselves and externally, arising and vanishing, mindfulness at our dhammas. Um, the arising and vanishing I already mentioned, that it's very, very important to be aware of the vanishing factor of the meditative absorptions because of the fact that we're very happy when our dukkha disappears, but we would like to hang on to our sukha, to our happiness. So we must watch that also disappearing. And only when we watch both of those disappearing do we know why existence is dukkha. Everything disappears. Nothing remains. So we have arising factors and vanishing factors and arising and vanishing factors. And also, of course, with real mindfulness, if we watch these mind content of these contents of mind and are objective about them, we lose this identification process again as we did before. When it says externally, which is a repetitive way of saying it, in this case, it would be extremely useful to use that as watching the trigger. Now, I have often said, and uh, use it as a constant reminder, don't blame the trigger. Everything that happens outside of us is a trigger. Some of the things are strong triggers. 
they have memory associated with them. We make an association of something that happened to us in the past, which either smelled like that, or felt like that, or looked like that, or sounded like that. And the trigger, the new trigger, becomes extremely strong. Other times we are so habitually imbued with our reactions that we don't even know we're reacting. We are just reacting. And blaming the trigger, of course. We even say that in our language. You make me sick. I mean, how can you make me sick? You know, I can only make myself sick. <laughs> but we have it imbued in the language. <laughs> so it is a v very normal, natural way of acting that we are blaming the outside trigger. This is the external mindfulness. Watching it, what's happening out there. And then seeing, this is a very important aspect also, is to see if it's an habitual reaction. If we're constantly having the same kind of uh, worry or fear when a similar thing happens, it means we haven't dealt with it at all. If we start dealing with it, we'll see it clearly for what it is. So having our buttons pressed and getting the same printout over and over again is of course counterproductive to a spiritual growth. Spiritual growth means essentially leaving our old habits and ingrained reactions behind. So that mindfulness externally in this case could be construed to mean to watch the trigger and see what is lacking in us that we're still responding or what we are hoping for which we're not getting obviously and therefore responding. Again, it is an interesting aspect of getting to know oneself better. Any questions about this aspect of content of mind? Yes. Well, something that gets triggered and it's really strong, overwhelming. When you say you need to deal with that, you know, because it's triggering this mind state. I mean, some of them are pretty tough. I mean, and don't seem to want to go away. Mind I mean, state. Yeah, is yeah. it, I mean, you talked here about investigating what you're, what you're desiring or mm. can't let go of or whatever. Whatever you're desiring that you haven't got or what you got and don't want. Yeah, what you're trying to get rid of. Yeah, right, yeah. So you want this whole thing to go away, but it's, are there other things that you can do besides just using the insight meditation, or is that totally the most effective? Well, in order to get at, uh, in order to make a change in the habitual response of the mind to a certain trigger, is that what we're talking about? Yes. Well, one of the things which is of the greatest help is, of course, 
the calm meditation to be able to um, get into the absorption makes a mind different. You get a different, there's a different aspect to mind then. It isn't all of it, but it certainly helps. But if the, uh, you know, if the mind hasn't become calm enough to do the absorption, Um, there is no other way except investigating. There's nothing else one can do to inquire, why am I reacting this way? And then ask again and again and again. You get down to the bottom line where it says, yes, well, <laughs> ego support or ego security or ego identification or, you know, I'm not getting what I want. What do I want? I want to have, you know, I want to be loved, I want to be appreciated, I want to be whatever it is one's looking for. Actually, the uh, um, most favorable response in trying to find out what it is and trying to change it is both calm and insight. The calm mind has a far greater ability to gain insight. Now, there are occasions, of course, when the unpleasantness which one sees as a reason is so that one doesn't want to have a look at it. Well, then the only other remedy is loving-kindness meditation towards oneself in order to change the upset back to equanimity. We have that kind of... Uh, calm feeling about oneself. But that doesn't bring insight in this case. It just remedies the situation as it is, and the next time it will probably arise in the same way again. So insight is the real answer. Right, now the next... um, aspect of content of mind here is called the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths, which include the Noble Eightfold Path, are, of course, the um, essence, the hub of the wheel of the Dhamma. The, in the first discourse the Buddha ever gave after his enlightenment, the Dhamma Chakra Pavadana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma. He started turning the wheel of the Dhamma, which, and it was, the content was the Four Noble Truths with the Noble Eightfold Path. This was what he realized as at his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. And um, it contains, in a very succinct form, the whole of the teaching, which he then, of course, over the years, 45 years of teaching, elaborated on over and over again in detail on according to the prevailing situation and in response to the questioners or to the people who were present. That's why even the same subject is not always dealt with in the same manner. 
It depended very much on who was present to listen. Now, again, we are told that a bhikkhu abides contemplating dhammas as dhammas in terms of the Four Noble, tru- four noble Truths, content of mind in terms of Four Noble Truths. And how does a bhikkhu abide contemplating dhammas as dhammas in terms of the Four Noble Truths? Here a bhikkhu understands as it actually is that such is suffering. He understands as it actually is, such is the origin of suffering. He understands as it actually is, such is the cessation of suffering. And he understands as it actually is, such is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Now here the Four Noble Truths are um, mentioned in a bit of a different language meaning always the same thing. Now, our own investigation into this is of the utmost importance. If we can see that our mind state contains suffering, we will also see that we are bringing it upon ourselves. And if we don't see that, we haven't understood Dukkha. Because with it comes immediately the second understanding, the origin of suffering. What's the origin of suffering? Right, that's right. So who's craving? The one who's suffering. Nobody else. So unless we see that there is suffering in the mind and it has been self-generated, we will not be able to do anything about it because nobody else is interested in getting rid of our suffering. Everybody's only interested in getting rid of their own suffering. Now this is such a basic truth which is lacking in most people's makeup. It's exactly the same thing as saying don't blame the trigger. But here we we use the language of the Four Noble Truths. And when we look at our mind state, which is not a happy one, it's not an equanimous, equanimous one, it's not a peaceful one, it's not a harmonious one, obviously there's some suffering in it. So what is it that I want and haven't got? Or what is it that I've got and want to get rid of? It's so simple, it is amazing that the, we need, the ma- mankind needed the genius of the Buddha to verbalize it and put it into succinct language and then elaborate it in his teaching over and over again so that eventually a few of us do understand. There is no suffering outside of one's own mind. Obviously there are things we do not know how to deal with but that isn't because of the things themselves. It is because of our inability to deal with them. The first and second noble truth are something that I would like you very much to experience at odd times during the day when the mind does not feel totally at ease and at peace. 
And when you experience the first and second noble truth, you will also gain far greater confidence in the Buddhist teaching. Because he said so, and you can experience it any time you wish. It's so simple. Most people don't like to experience it unless they're practicing like we are here, because it puts the owners of the experience on themselves, and the rest of the world doesn't seem to play a part in it. And that isn't either interesting, nor does it take away the burden of having to do something about it. Naturally, when we practice like we do here, it's a totally different story. We do want to know. I'm talking about the world at large. And in that world of large, we do find ourselves there too. And when we suffer, we don't realize that it's strictly our own. So when it is seen for that, we can realize the third one. It is possible. There is cessation of suffering. How do we get to cessation of suffering other than to Nibbana? This actually means Nibbana. But we can seize the suffering that we have at that particular moment. How? Hmm? Who, who said that? <laughs> yeah, but that's the way, that's the way to Nibbana. What I'm saying is this. If we have suffering, and we have seen that suffering is always due to craving, that there's a first and second noble truth, and we'd like to get out out of that particular suffering, what do we do? Yeah, that's right. It's so simple. It's it's almost it's almost innocuous. And who does it? Very few people. What you were saying, Anya, is the ultimate thing. I was being more in the momentary. <laughs> so it's easy to do. I I usually tell this story about it. When I was still in my nunnery in Sri Lanka, where I was till last year, I gave a course there for um, a group of teenagers, all between 18 and 25, something like that. Sinhalese, um, who had never had a meditation course before. And I was, they knew Buddhism to a certain extent. Anyway, I tried to teach them so that they could actually see it. And I said, now, about the first and second noble truth, try to see whether this is true. If you have any kind of particular thing that you want, and it's creating suffering in you, try to drop it and see whether you can manage and tomorrow let me know about it. So next day I asked, you know, did anybody do this experiment? And one girl uh, said, yes, I did the experiment. And I said, uh, what did you do? She said, well, ever since I've come here, I've, I've been wondering how I could get a little cushion like that with a tassel and a little bell on it. I think it's so pretty. And I know it's not available in Sri Lanka, it's quite true, it's from Korea. And uh, I've been trying to figure out how I could make one or where I could get one. I was getting quite upset about it. And now I realize that all I had to do is forget about wanting a thing like that, and I would be all right. And I did, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> so you can remember this when you see this. 
drop the wanting. It's, um, as I said before, it's so simple that one wonders why isn't everybody doing it. And there is another very absurd reason why people don't do it. People get very attached to their dukkha. That makes them feel alive. It's my problem. And, uh, you know, I've, you know, I've got, really, I've got this suffering, you know, it's, it's really bad, you know. And it's probably worse than anybody else's. So, um, in order, in order to get rid of it, one has to drop whatever it is one wants. But, uh, one isn't about to do that. Because this whole system that one is identifying with is going to collapse. Our greatest suffering arises from the fact that we want something that we can't get. We want to remain alive. We'd like to be here. It's our strongest craving. Bhava tanha in Pali. Tanha means craving and bhava means being. Craving for being. And it's impossible. We can't do it. We're all going to disappear sooner or later. So we are finding ourselves in an impossible situation where we have a wish for something which is permeating our whole being, so to say, and can never be satisfied. We want to make it steady, solid, permanent, continuous, and secure. Now we can't make it any of that. We can't make our existence continuous, steady, secure, and permanent. It just isn't possible. And yet we keep on trying. We try with all our might. We spend a lot of time and energy on it, and a lot of frustration, because it just doesn't work. So that particular suffering can only be eliminated when we give up the wanting to be here. That doesn't mean that we now want to be not here. That's the other side of the same coin of wanting. It just means we're here as long as we're here. And that's all there is to it. And if we're not here, that's fine too. Now that takes a fair bit of insight to realize that actually there's nobody here anyway. So it doesn't really matter whether you're here or not. However, this particular suffering is going to stay with us until we have come to the point of letting go of this idea that I should be here. However, all the minor sufferings of how what people think about us and how they react to us and how am I going to get my act together and all the rest of it, all those minor sufferings can be reduced or even eliminated, some of them, by dropping the wanting. Do a contemplation of what it is that's creating any kind of dissatisfaction in you, because Dukkha is dissatisfaction. Just find whatever it is, maybe even a minor thing, it doesn't matter what it is. And then see whether you can drop 
wanting to have it or wanting to get rid of it. And see the whole dukkha disappear immediately. Now this is a very, not only interesting experiment, but it's a very, it feels a very relieving experiment. It relieves one of having to carry around all the things that one wants or doesn't want. Because one can drop them. So try and do an experiment of that sort. And as we drop our wanting, that same moment, whatever it was that was bothering us, disappears completely. Now it may re-arise a minute later, because we haven't really let go of it, but for the moment of dropping, it disappears. And that creates a great deal of faith and confidence in trying to follow the path a little more, with a little more deliberation and in more detail. One really needs to follow this in detail. Because all the, all the details come together like a mosaic and form a great picture. And as they form a great picture, they form the picture of no more, no more suffering. That's the whole picture of it. Now the first and second noble truth is something we can all uh, experiment with and actually experience the third one. Now the third one, in actual fact, means Nibbana, the cessation of all suffering, right? The one where we don't have this suffering of wanting to be here. However, I'm also using it as a cessation of the momentary suffering. And as you see that, cessation of the momentary suffering, where whatever it was that you wanted is now no longer important and the whole uh, anxiety is gone, you will be able to realize from that experience that one can get rid of all suffering by letting go of this wanting to be somebody. That isn't not necessarily possible to do it right away, but at least it is a possibility I understand it. And then understanding it, one knows what one needs to practice. Maybe we shouldn't even say be nobody because it sounds as if you're still somebody, doesn't it? But at least one has an inkling of what the Buddha is talking about when he says that it is possible to let go of all suffering. So having been able to let go of a momentary, maybe even a very minor thing, right? By letting go, or also wanting, one can infer what it means to let go of the whole kit and caboodle. That doesn't mean one dies. It means one lives without this wanting, without this strength of wanting something. Me, particularly, wanting me. And that understanding is certainly um, has a great deal. Hmm? Uh, are, there, are there different ways to, to get rid of that one thing? Because just dropping it, it comes back over and over again. What else can you do than see it for what it is, dropping it? Can you 
else can you do? Right. Are you now talking about the wanting to be somebody? Or are you talking about wanting, let's say, uh, um, a cottage cheese for breakfast? Well, it's very minor, but I mean... <laughs> Something in between. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. A nice house and garden. Something like All right. that. Okay. All right. Okay. But I just have to know which one you're talking about. <laughs> okay. Um, how to get rid of that so that it doesn't keep coming back, the wanting. Okay. Um, if that particular wanting creates unhappiness, because one has got it, whatever it is that one wants, um, one can understand that one is the creator of one's own unhappiness. And as one understands that one is the creator of one's own unhappiness, one could call oneself very rightly a fool. There's no need to be a fool. One could create happiness by being contented with what one has. And see the enormous wealth of what one has, which starts out with health and well-being, with practicing Dhamma, with uh, don't have any obstacles to the practice because all senses available, teacher available, and so on. Counting one's blessings. And as one does that, that idea of wanting something else fades into the background. Again, when it comes up, doing it again and again. That does not to be confused with making a plan to accomplish something. That's also a wanting. But if this accomplishment has been um, uh, examined, what one has in mind, as being within Dhamma and for one's own and possibly others' growth, then one should go ahead with the accomplishment and keep on step by step, but not try to um, become impatient that the last step hasn't been taken. So we mustn't confuse a plan for an accomplishment with wanting something which isn't in our reach. The wanting something of what isn't in our reach makes us unhappy. The step-by-step accomplishment of what we can do makes us very happy. So one of the things is to call oneself a fool, to make oneself unhappy, and count one's blessings. And see again and again that having, well, if we're looking at material things, that if one can't have whatever it is that one wants in a material way, that these material things are impediments. The Buddha calls them impediments. Material things are impediments. They need to be cleaned. They need to be uh, repaired. They need to be renewed. They need to be protected and looked after. So we have constant impediments in time and energy. Not owning things, the Buddha sometimes compared to be uh, free as a bird that doesn't carry anything around with him. He just flies around. That concerns material things.
anything else about any of this. If it's a mood, it's a mind state yeah. rather than mind content. Mind That's a, yes, mind state, which is the third foundation of mindfulness. The fourth one is the mind content, the one we're on now. But mind state, if it's an unhappy one, substitution. Certainly no hanging on to it. Uh, not so easy to say, well, just drop it, you know. It's like uh, uh, people tell you, well, just relax, you know. Well, you can't, you know. <laughs> It'd be very nice if you could, you know, just drop it on it. But the, the um, easier way is a substitution. When you see that the un suffering state of mind brings unhappiness with it, um, it isn't worthwhile hanging on to. It doesn't seem to have a, net, uh, a cause or a content. There doesn't seem to be anything in it that has any value at all. So we try to substitute with a state of mind which is positive. And it may have to be generated by a positive way of thinking. Because thinking also generates then the feeling again. So we need to put a thought content into the mind which has the positivity in it. Well, you're not um, turning yourself away from it. You ha you're substituting it. You have to first be completely aware of it. No. Otherwise, you're not no. going to do anything about it. No. So first comes the awareness, right? Then comes the substitution. And if the mind becomes habituated towards the positive um, states of mind, it will less and less um, veer towards the negative ones. It is uh, like putting ruts in the mind, like into a wet driveway. And since our mind is a jewel, we need to be very careful of it and guard it very diligently and do not allow it to become um, smudged or dirtied or chipped or anything like that. So we look after it by substitution from the negative to the positive. Well, okay. So there is some value in, in having a good look at what the feeling actually feels like and sure. to try to get around it fully to really hold it even though 
Well, I wouldn't hold it too long. The longer you hold it, the more it smudges the mind. The quicker you substitute, the better. Because it gets, you see, the longer you keep it, the more of an impact it makes. Like when you have a wet driveway and you've got a big truck there, and that truck stands there, day after day after day, the rut gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah. Get it out of there as quickly as you can. Well, I mean, it's a state of mind, so why the, unless you can find the content of it. But I mean, if, it's a, if there isn't any particular content to it, well, just leave it at state of mind and substitute. It doesn't matter. The positive state of mind is a state of mind that becomes equanimous. It's never a negative state of mind. The one that's even is always a positive. Now the fourth noble truth is the noble eightfold path, which is quite, um, which is here said, such is the way leading to the cessation of suffering, and that we will have to discuss tomorrow, because that will take you know, quite a long time in itself. In fact, one could talk a week about that one, but I will not do so. We want to get to some other sutta also. And the Noble Eightfold Path is then the fourth noble truth. And um, again, that inside paragraph is the same as before, and we might use that again tomorrow when we've done the Noble Eightfold Path independent. Um, the, um, one of the things that I would like to mention at this point is the fact that we're having this retreat a little differently from the way we are probably used to having these 10-day retreats. Now, in the 10-day retreats, we have a very um, regulated time schedule where the gongs ring at certain intervals and you got to sit and um, or you got to walk and one of the uh, detrimental aspects of that is the dependency on the uh, teacher the group and the gong As you practically all know, I always have people fill out forms before we have the retreat of what they've been doing and so forth. And most people do not continue their practice after the 10-day retreat is over. This way we're doing it here is supposed to generate the independence of group, teacher, and gongs. You'll have to make your own timetable. It's entirely up to you. And as you make your own timetable, you can make it as stringent or as lax as you wish. It's all yours. Nobody is going to hit you over the head and say, you must. Because after a 10-day course, and if you take one and you all have, no, not all, but almost all of you, you go home, there's nobody there to say you must. 
There are no gongs, there's no teacher, there's no group, and there's nothing. And what happened? Exactly that. Nothing. <laughs> so this is supposed to help you in that direction. And also, if you want to become a successful practitioner of the Buddha's Dhamma, where it will bring you to the end of suffering, you've got to become independent. Now, as you know, I'm available for you any time at all to answer questions, to give any guidance, to have ideas, whatever, right? To tell you where you're going wrong, anything at all. But you've got to become independent. You've got to do it yourself. Nobody can do enlightenment for you. Nobody can even do wisdom for you. The only thing that anybody can do is knowledge, no wisdom. And this we do here with the suttas, try to get some knowledge. That's all, that's all that's possible. And the other thing is, with the, um, with the independence and with doing your own uh, timetable, if you want to, if you feel like talking, Remember that the other person may not feel like it. So why don't you come and talk to me? It's not that I feel like it so much, but I'm forced to. <laughs> I mean, I've got to. So you might as well come and talk to me, okay? And you can just walk in and say, look, I feel like talking. I said, all right, what about, you know, what are we going to talk about? It's fine, okay? One substitute for that is, as you all have little books, little diaries and things, is to write things in your diary. You're talking to your diary. Your diary can be your friend. And I, in my own practice, have found this very valuable. I don't write it anymore. I've got nothing to write about. But I used to have a lot of things to write about. And I wrote it down. And then I read it again after two or three years, and I thought to myself, my God, what's rubbish. <laughs> I said, I mean, how could I ever think like that? You know? And it's a very relieving feeling to know that you don't think like that anymore. I mean, it was absolutely amazing. And I thought, gee, that's very nice I wrote this. But I still have those things. I, mean, I don't know where they are. But um, I didn't throw it away. And I found that very, very helpful. Now also, um, that's one way of using the diary. The other way, of course, is to write down pertinent aspects for practice. And that I also have done over the years um, and have found that indispensable. I would not be able to teach, I wouldn't be able to tell you a thing if I hadn't written it down. Naturally, in telegram style, Naturally, only that which I thought was really pertinent at the time, but I wouldn't have known, I couldn't have remembered it. But actually putting it on paper, and in my own words, made all the difference. So, uh, in two ways, your diary is very helpful, extremely helpful. And as you write down your mind state, you may also realize, even at the time of writing it down, this is not guaranteed, but it's possible, that it's a useless state. You may think at the time, yeah, yeah, that's the way it is. I mean, that also happens, you know. But you may also realize at the time of writing down, that's useless. I'll do something else with my mind. So very helpful. So 
Now we've been here a week. Uh, this is Saturday, isn't it? Yes, we started on I mean, Friday evening, but Saturday was our first day. I'd like you to consider to um, practice a little more um, stringently, more diligently. In other words, maybe sit a little longer in the evening or um, make a few more sits during the day when otherwise you were having a walk, whatever. It's entirely up to you. I'd like to just make you think about it because you'd be surprised how quickly even a month goes by. And I can assure you, it's very quick, even a life goes by. I've almost made it, and it seems like no time at all. It goes so quickly. So think of that. That arouses some vaguer urgency. And none of us have any guarantee that we're going to be around till the 80s. I mean, even that's not very long, but uh, we don't even know that. So think of it, and we have this opportunity here this time with excellent weather and excellent facilities, and um, uh, really, that's another thing I'd like to uh, suggest to you, that you think uh, arouse gratitude for your good fortune, that you have this opportunity. because it makes the mind calm and um, peaceful. Gratitude is a very important and helpful factor in the mind. And, you know, we are very prone to take all the good things for granted and whinge about the bad ones. That's a real Australian whinge. <laughs> so we have that habit. It's very strange. Um, we have a sort of a feeling as if we are um, as if we are due all the good things. Well, we're not. We're very fortunate. So this uh, idea of this gratitude is um, arousing us. It's very helpful for the practice. The uh, talking is not very detrimental. Uh, remembering that the time goes by very quickly. So um, use it to the very best advantage, make your own timetable, and realize that your practice is independent of any teacher. A teacher has only one responsibility and duty, and that's to become enlightened him or herself. That's all. The rest is all up to you. So that is um, a way of also feeling one's own strength. One feels much stronger when one knows one is one has to be independent. And uh, dependency is actually slavery. Because then the the teacher may say, I'll go away, I don't want to see you or something like that. And then what? You gotta go and run around and find a new one or something. That's 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 not helpful. That feeling of strength that comes from the feeling of independence is a great help, particularly for the meditative absorption, that inner strength. So think about these uh, aspects of your own practice. Feel strong in it and um, realize the good fortune that we are having in being here. And um, 
it's a, quite a wonderful place and opportunity to have this. And uh, so we use it to the very best of our ability. Anybody have anything they want to mention? Pro or con? <laughs> or in argument? It's an interesting fact how the um, Satipatthana Sutta, the foundation of mindfulness which we're reading, is mentioned over and over again and used over and over again everywhere and one doesn't realize the enormous content in it. It contains everything we need to practice but some of it in so short form that people overlook it. It is very much geared towards insight, but as you have, would have seen from the seven enlightenment factors, it contains within enlightenment also the absorption factors. So we have a complete uh, blueprint for practice, but of course we will also study other sutras naturally just for interest. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Let gratitude arise in you for your good fortune in this life. Being able to practice without impediments. And let contentment arise for who you are and where you are. Fill yourself with gratitude and contentment. And notice the joy that arises from that.
fill everyone here with gratitude for their presence, their efforts. help to sustain everybody's efforts. Fill everyone with contentment. Coming from your heart about everyone here. Surround everyone with joy. Think of your near and dear ones. Fill them with gratitude for their presence in your life. With contentment for who they are. Embrace them with the joy arising from your practice. Think of your friends and relations with gratitude. Let them feel that you're grateful that they are part of your life. Let them feel your contentment with them. Surround them with joy. that they also have part in your practice.
think of your neighbors at home and around here, people you work with and people you've met. Fill them with your gratitude for being part of your life. enriching it let them feel your contentment with them let them experience your joy arising from practice Think of anyone whom you may not like very much. Fill that person with your gratitude for the learning experience they have provided for you. Surround them with a joy. comes from your practice. with a grateful and joyous heart reach out to as many people as you can think of near and far touching their hearts enriching them connecting with them giving the gift of your heart
put your attention back on yourself. Think of all the things that you have reason to be grateful for. Let the heart expand with the joy of knowing how much goodness there is in your life. May beings everywhere be happy and peaceful.